This is exactly right. It's me, Roz. I feel like I need to like do that thing for like new people because I always forget. I'm so sorry. I always forget, but we, we always get new people listening to the show. So, hey, welcome. I'm Roz, the host, she, her, slash, they, them pronouns. And uh, go back and listen to the old episodes. They're all still up in the feed wherever you get this podcast. And we've had... Over a hundred interviews now with paranormal professionals and celebrities and drag queens and psychics and listeners and all kinds of people. So um, I hope you subscribe to the show and enjoy. Okay, one thing I wanted to pass along here before we get into part two with Michelle Belanger, the demon episode. Uh, I saw this this story that was making a little bit of headlines and this particular article is from NBC Miami. There is a haunted jail for sale in Florida. Oh, Florida. Okay. So this place, it is, um, the property surrounding the old Gilchrist County Jail, which opened in 1928 and operated for 40 years, somewhat dilapidated. The interior is well-preserved. The original cell doors, bunks, and bath fixtures are in place. There's no running water, though the jail portion has no electricity. Okay, how much are they asking? A little more than 2,000 square feet. $140,000. Okay, this is the part that I liked. Arlene Hale's husband bought the jail for her as a birthday present a dozen years ago, paying $30,000 for it. First of all, that's an amazing birthday present. I love a husband buying his wife, Arlene, a haunted, dilapidated jail for $30,000. But hey, that could be a real good, I mean, $140,000 is what they're asking now. That could be a good investment. So they've had lots of paranormal investigations here. Inmates and the ghost of a man that was murdered there in 2008 are most often reported. Unexplained voices, shadowy figures, and sensations of being touched have been reported. Classic. The 73-year-old said it's become too difficult for her to keep up with the property, but she is hoping to strike a deal with the new owners so she can still court other paranormal enthusiasts there from time to time. So that was one thing I read in one of these articles about this place was, you know, whoever buys it, it's like that could be a good side hustle, having people come in there and do some paranormal investigating. I don't know. Look it up for yourself. There's some photos out there, and it looks terrifying but i don't know my birthday is in october if anyone wants to buy it for my birthday <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know anyway we have got michelle Belanger on the podcast today and i was so happy to hear from so many of you 
that how much you loved part one. Now, part one was, you know, a different conversation than what we talk about today. We talk about all kinds of stuff, but definitely a focus on demons. And as always, patreon.com slash Ross You can find that link also in the description of this episode. I have some more. Uh, we have a little clip on there of me my with my typical concern about am I allowed to joke about demons or will I become possessed And Michelle gives me some great insight on that. And also, we talk about how common demonic possession is, which, of course, is another fear of mine. You know, it's all this stuff where I'm like, I don't want to mess with demons because they might uh, make me, you know, vomit pea soup everywhere or whatever. But I feel so much better talking to Michelle after, uh, after this conversation. I feel so much better about about demons. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, but I'm, I don't feel that I'm in constant fear and I'm just building a list of people that I could call if ever it becomes a problem. And uh, I hope that you feel that way too. And I hope that you follow these people that are on the show and uh, keep up with them. And Michelle will tell you everything that she has going on at the end of the episode and definitely check out Michelle and all of the things she does. Another thing on patreon.com slash rosdresveless on my first tier, I always have my fun little videos every week. And this week, okay, this was a real doozy for me. I don't even know how this happened, but somehow I caught wind of the fact that Butch Patrick, aka the actor that played Eddie Munster on the TV show, The Monsters, was going to be doing an autograph signing at this place that I've always wanted to go to called the Valley Relics Museum, which is a museum in the San Fernando Valley here in uh, Los Angeles. And it's just like all I've seen people post there and it just looks really cool. It's like a bunch of old neon signs of different businesses that used to be in the San Fernando Valley and lots of like movie memorabilia and just like cool just stuff, which I love, and like all these pinball machines and just just like fun stuff to look at. So I went there and I got to meet Eddie Munster and took a picture, got an autograph. So I made a little video of me and my friend Johnny doing that this weekend. But the best part was I just so happened to, you know, as I always do ask people, I'm like, oh, do you believe in ghosts or whatever? I asked Butch Patrick and turns out Butch Patrick lived in a haunted house and starts pulling out his phone and showing me videos of the ghosts that lived in that house. And he was nice enough to let me videotape his camera, um, his, his phone as he was doing that. And um, I was like, would you ever want to come on my podcast? And he was like, yeah. Um, so I don't know. Hopefully we'll be able to make it work. I- I'm working on it. But I thought that was kind of cool. Eddie Munster. I love the Munsters. Okay. Now the Munsters, if you watch the Munsters, yes, it's a sitcom from the 60s. So sometimes the jokes, you're like, okay, I've heard that joke a thousand times. But then you have to always like, keep in mind like, okay, but back in the 60s, like this was like, these jokes were incredible. Um, but I don't necessarily just go there for the, the jokes. I just love, I just love the monsters. It's just so fun and kitschy. And, and honestly, the theme song of this show is kind of inspired by the 
theme song to the monsters. That was certainly one of the references that uh, I wanted to try to conjure a bit with the song. So I don't know. I just love the monsters. So I, I thought it was fun. So you can see a little video of that on Patreon this week. And um, I guess that's about it for the top of this show. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, continued conversation with Michelle Belanger. On with the show. Can we talk about demons? Yeah, absolutely. It's, okay. it's a fun week to talk about demons. I mean, how about that music video? Oh, my God. I actually was planning to ask you about that as well. Well, first of all, for, for anyone that may not know, you have written a like kind of like the definitive, the dictionary of demons, which recently had its 10th anniversary re-release congratulations yeah i got hardback for the first time in my entire writing career it's pretty cool well you've written like a billion but how many books have you written uh 30 something and i I, yeah um it depends on if i count it depends on what types of publications i count because i've actually been publishing since like 91 amazing and yeah under some pen names and yeah it will broadly say 30 yeah because i was (laughs) I was thinking about Satanic Panic because, like, Satanic Panic is making a comeback. And, um, yeah, this Lil Nas X music video where he's giving a lap dance to Satan. And, okay, I have a lot of demon questions. But, yeah, yeah what, are you, so uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on, on that Satanic Panic situation? Oh, well, what I will say about the, the music video is... I think it is a brilliant work of art Mm -hmm. to basically say, you're going to call me evil for my queerness, for my blackness. You're going to make me a demon. Mm -hmm. I will show you a demon, sweetie. Like, like (laughs) it is so sassy and it is so, I mean, it's, it takes all of those expectations and it just shoves them right back in people's faces and it owns it in a way Uh that is incredibly liberating. Uh, And Man, the haters do not get it. <laughs> like, like they, they just do not get it. Well, and I think that that's part of the problem with demons. And I, and I struggle with this too, being raised Catholic. I don't at all identify as a Catholic, but it's like so deep in my brain, this idea of like, you don't mess with the devil. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I'm not offended by at all by Lona's ex, but I, I understand that that is so deep in our culture and a lot of people's upbringings and practice to this day. I understand that, but demons, demons, demons. Okay. I mean, is there a devil? Is that a thing? Is, does it work that way? It, it, well, one, it, it, I need to separate it from what people's beliefs are and and how those are important to people's religious or spiritual paths. And then, uh, you know, me talking as the academic who's got a degree in comparative religious studies and has read uh, Sumerian and Babylonian stuff on down. Um, you know, is there a devil in the sense of some personified force of evil who is, I don't know, at odds with with God and trying to like, you know, involved in some war for human souls? Uh that's true to a number of world religions. And I don't want to attack what people believe. And one of the reasons that I went into what I did uh, at my Catholic college um, was I wanted to see like, 
why do we believe these things? Where did these beliefs come from? What's the, the history of these stories and these myths? And uh, one of the things that I've learned as from the academic side of it is most of our ideas of demons, like they're not even, Christians got their demonology and angelology from Jews. Jews got a lot of their stuff, if not all of it, from the Babylonians and the Sumerians and from the, the cultural milieu of the, the ancient Middle East. Uh, and these ideas of these beings go back so much further than the, the concept of heaven and hell, damnation, redemption. And it is, it is a journey for these beliefs to get to where they're at now. Um, and we to can't get to have be, getting in a, a lap dance from Lil Nas right, X. Right. <laughs> lap dance with Satan, like the whole war in heaven, um, all of that stuff. Like the things that we think of as this is just what the devil is. Like Satan is, uh, Satan has horns and Satan is red and Satan has that funny tail with the weird little bit on the end. Uh, but at the same time, he's also Lucifer Morningstar, like the brightest of angels and oh, how he has fallen. And there's some great hubris and rebellion, the war in heaven. Um, you know, third of the angels fell, yada, yada, yada. All of that is so many different streams that have been braided together, uh, both in biblical texts, uh, texts that are adjacent to biblical writings, but then also uh, what we would probably in this day think of as biblical fan fiction. But at the time, um, it was, you know, Dante's Inferno, Milton's Paradise Lost, the stories that people told inspired by what they were reading and in their interpretation of what Lucifer was and what Satan was. And all of that has this rich spice added into it from all of the different um, indigenous belief systems that Christianity colonized, kind of going off of, I mean, it, once Rome became a Christian state, Rome, which were, as far as like, you know, our European ancestors were, were concerned, like Rome was pretty much like the, the king of colonizers, like they, they pretty much set the, the gold standard for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and religion was a significant part of the Roman state. So you needed to, if you were a Roman colony, follow the Roman religion. Well, originally that was a pagan religion. Once it gets switched to a, a Christian religion, once it's the church, you doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your original beliefs were, you have to bow to the power of Rome. And the best way to do that was to assimilate maybe a few things like, you know, your, your local mother goddess might become a saint like Bridget. Um, saint Bridget is, is very much uh, a Celtic goddess who just got sainted because they couldn't get rid of her any other way. And if there was a competing god, usually a male god, uh, they demonized him. They turned him into a, to some aspect of the devil. And there's so many qualities from the, the shaggy goat legs and the hooves that we get from Pan to that weird tail that almost certainly comes from the Egyptian god Set the horns, the red, like all of it, like there's different pieces and aspects that have been assimilated from all these different deities that Yahweh couldn't deal with as competition. I think where I'm at with it right now is that there is, that there are these forces that exist. Um, and I think it's kind of like a matter of, semantics or mm. you know just beliefs um that it it 
is different things for different people, but nonetheless the same thing. Um, what about that? Is that a thing? Oh, okay. Oh no, no, that's that's a different. Like, is there a devil versus is there a are there such things as demons? Those are honestly two different questions. Ah, right. Okay. Because the the devil, Satan, Lucifer, like these are monolithic entities that have very specific places in 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 belief systems. And while demons kind of do, they're they're a little. They're simultaneously more complex, but also less pivotal to uh, especially the eschatology of, of Christianity, which is sort of like our, 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 main, our, our mainstream thing that you, know, you and I are working in anyway. Uh, so digging through historical stuff, just from like the, the, the folklore and myth, the idea of demons is these spirits that are not human, maybe somewhere, and they're not necessarily gods, they're somewhere in between humans and gods, but they are agents of chaos and destruction and disease. And they, uh, for one reason or another, bring uh, you know, difficult things into the realm of mortals. Like that is an ancient concept. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has been retained as a thread. And this is where I step out of me as the academic and the scholar to me as the paranormal investigator and the person who's experienced stuff and, and, and make that distinction to say, I have definitely been present for, witnessed and interacted with on rare occasions. Some things that I don't know what other label would be applied beyond that. Um, what is that activity like? Oh, weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dark like you know would you say it it is an overwhelming feeling of of just nothing but bad as a paranormal investigator for me to even hesitantly bring up the word demon I, i've got a strict kind of checklist and that checklist involves it has to be intelligent it has to be something that doesn't seem like it was ever human. It's it's not like Uncle Bob who was an alcoholic and is just kind of a, an, an asshole in death. Okay. Um, it, it's got a very different feel from people and it feels old and bigger than us. So intelligent, non-human, demonstrably malevolent, not just mischievous, not just misunderstood, not trying so hard to communicate that people are freaking out because things are happening, but like it's causing harm knowingly and seems to really enjoy what it's doing. And then sort of the final part of that is a fixation on doing that to people that, you know, it's not just some big spooky thing in the woods, but this thing has seek has sought out one or more people in order to torment them because it likes to. Uh, and with these, do we say entities or beings? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I really try to like play down the demon word because I think it does get tossed out too much. And too oh, yeah. Easy. Especially in paranormal investigation, like it's the easiest way to get a thrill and like a, a jump scare as you go to like the commercial break. Yes, um, our culture <laughs> loves it. I mean, it's the scariest thing imaginable to a lot of people. Yeah. But I mean, is it when you've encountered these, these are specifically uh, entities or whatever that it's not like you can sit down and go, hey, you know, 
is it are you having a bad day you, you can't you can't you can't reason yeah. with them you can't you can't flip them you can't change them they are here for bad and that's what they will do right yeah there's there's really no reasoning with them they don't operate on uh, like psychology that you can figure out it's certainly not that's the whole non-human aspect like they they don't have right. human motivations and trying to communicate with them uh, from from our perspective is really freaking hard. And most of the time they just don't care because they realize that if they wait long enough, you're not going to be there anymore. Like they don't, they, they can just keep doing what they're doing. So would you be willing to share like where you've experienced or what, what it was, what the activity was like or any of that? Uh, yeah, well, there, were, there were a couple. So when I worked on Paranormal State, um, I had I'd actually made a specific request to not be called in on any of the cases that they thought were demonic. Um, and th- this wasn't because I didn't want to work with that sort of stuff, but it was more that I, I didn't always agree with the assessment. And I did not want to be that person on camera that was just fighting with everyone going, no, guys, it's not a demon. Like, I, I just didn't want to have to get into it. Um, but there were a few instances where there was no better word. Uh, we were in, uh, I think we had, it, it, we were like right on the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Bucks County comes to mind. Uh, Burlington, New Jersey comes to mind, like somewhere in that area. Um, I was on a case that was not demonic. And since we were close enough, Father Bob was on a case that they thought was demonic. And because Father Bob was really dedicated to trying to help the family, like that was a, a big thing that we w- that we did. Like, so we would do stuff that wasn't even getting filmed. Like we had the official hours that we were putting in, but if bad stuff was still happening to the family, sometimes we would just go over there and help camera crew or no camera crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and Father Bob asked me because I, I won't say that I'm fluent in Latin, um, and it was astounding to me as someone who was raised Catholic that I knew Latin better than a Catholic priest, but they don't teach them that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's not really taught much these uh, days. Yeah, so so he was feeling a little out of his depth because he felt that there were there was some Latin that was coming through. So he wanted me to sit in on um, his exorcism um, of what was going on and basically listen um, and see what I heard for the interaction. Um, as basically having a second pair of eyes for what he thought he was experiencing. And when they talk about, you know, cases of possession where a person's face changes, Uh and that makes really great gripping movie stuff. It is creepy as hell on the screen, but you know, something in the back of your head goes, no, it can't really happen like that. Like physics and and physiology tells us people's faces can't change in front of you. Um, That stuff happens. (laughs) Like it's without Botox and fillers and all of that. Yeah, No, like in in a way where like (laughs) your brain's going, this can't actually be real, but what am I looking at? Like, and, and there is a wrongness um, there's something about the environment that just jumps that uncanny valley, like all of your hairs stand up at once. Um, and I know a lot of people will process like a, a foul smell, but I'm not yeah. so sure that, that demons stink in the sense of like they've got a stinky smell is just something seems off. 
when something like that is around and, and all of your senses are basically clamoring, like however you process stuff, everything feels that this is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, so, so that one was, that one was an experience. So, so yeah. Um, sitting in on some of father Bob's exorcisms, uh, that was, that was a lot. <laughs> now, would you say, uh, you get scared? I am either very brave or very dumb. Um, and there's not a whole lot that scares me. I, I, I think some of it is, um, you know, we have a lot of conversations these days about like being neurodivergent and neuroatypical. Uh, yeah. and, and maybe it is like the first five years of my life being in hospitals and, and, yeah. and I, lots of things. But um, I don't have a much of a startle response. I, I, I respond to a lot of things emotionally quite different from other people. Um, I'm not Spock by, by any means, but I, I don't. I don't know. I st I'm much more likely, even in that circumstance, to just be analyzing what's going on and going, is this actually happening? Like, what, what, what is this? What, like, what is this? Oh my uh, God, I could not. I mean, should, should, should I be scared of demons? The encounters, these instances are incredibly rare. That's what uh, I think. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing, let's see, I've been doing like, active paranormal investigation or haunting resolution since like 1991 I, well actually no like 89 Ugh. I started really early I was doing stuff for friends in high school um I think I can count on one hand on the fingers of one hand and I don't think I'm even using all of those fingers the number of times that I've encountered something that I would say yeah I don't know what else to call it but demonic well, what can you tell me to make me not terrified of demons every single night as I go to bed? <laughs> Incredibly rare. Um, not something that's going to show up just because you thought about it or just because you were afraid of it. Okay. Uh, something that even if um, there there's something, like it is a long standing, like wearing a person down, like there's multiple steps along that journey where you could be like, oh no, no, whatever you are, go away. Um, and it's really only these very extreme circumstances of someone who is a special type of vulnerable. Uh, and that has a lot to do usually with their background. Um, sometimes there are addictions, like, like how wounded they are, how bad their uh, emotional and mental boundaries have been wound down by various things in their life. Um, uh -huh. So highly unlikely for it to happen and certainly uh, uh you know a cute little rapper doing a lap dance for for a cgi lucifer it's not going to bring a, a devil into your life <laughs> well what about um you know if you go ghost hunting at a place that they that is believed there's demons there how do you how do you not have it follow you home i mean if there's actually demons there uh you're, the average person is going to have such a very like, ooh, oh, oh, no, no, I don't want to be here, that you probably will leave before there's any chance of, you know, quote unquote, contagion. Um, and I got to say, like, the word demon is tossed around like candy in the yeah. paranormal. And it's just, there are a lot of things out there. And there are some things that are, are darker, that are violent, that are mean. Uh, quite a number of them are dead humans who just have not gotten over their stuff and, like, frankly, need a good therapist. 
Uh, and just because they're dead doesn't mean they've stopped being violent, abusive people. And it's easy to mistake those for demons. Right. I, I know some people are like, well, no, they, they turn into a demon after death. And I'm like, mm, no, they're, they're just the same old asshole. Uh, <laughs> turn into a demon. Yeah, yeah I guess no, it's no, possible. Yeah, no, <laughs> some, some, some people really do believe that. And I'm like, I don't think it really works that way. Like I can see that I can see the interpretation of since they are a spirit now and they are continuing to do the same bad things that we're doing in life. I could see where you would kind of go, well, that's, that's evil by, by, you know, some people's ideas of it, but they're not, they, they lack a lot of the really kind of uncanny power of the, and I cannot stress enough, like less than five things I can think of that I've dealt with um, in a career since, you know, the eighties, <laughs> if I'm, if I'm like really being honest for how long I've poked around with this stuff. What about Ouija boards? Like, you know, I people <laughs> like to talk about that too. Or See, you... I swear you're psychic because I was thinking about, um, I am psychic. I think. Yeah. No, no. Literally thinking about, cause the reason I said eighties was, um, there was a point where, you know, of course sleepovers, uh, and, and teens and you pull out the Ouija board, especially if anybody's interested in a weird stuff. And inevitably, uh, inevitably, there's some point where either you're talking to the Ouija board and it's telling you which of your teachers are virgins. Uh, maybe that was just my <laughs> friend group. Uh, <laughs> or it starts like circling around and around and around. And it's like, you know, spelling out Satan or demon or something. Everybody like shrieks and runs out of the room. Um, so uh, Ouija boards get bad rap. And I think that it has a lot to do with media uh, and especially with uh, The Exorcist, the movie, and mm -hmm. just sort of like the whole way in which that was portrayed. And then also the way in which uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren kind of picked up the idea that certain occult objects were doorways that would invite evil stuff into your life. Um, tarot cards, Ouija boards. I've, I I worked with Lorraine. I, I, I met her, uh, I did not get to meet Ed. He had passed away already, but you know, she worked with Ryan. She worked for Paranormal State. Uh, we had a couple of good conversations. We had a couple of hard conversations. We had one very lengthy disagreement on camera where I don't know where those 40 minutes of film went. And I wish I did because it was about a Ouija board. I would we, love to see that. Cause yeah, she was very Christian. Yeah, and, and and very, very firm. So we, it was Maryland, maybe, North Carolina, North or South Carolina in this case. It was a, this old farmhouse. It had pomegranates in the back. It was a really cute little home. Um, she and I were both on it um, doing psychic stuff. We both, separate from one another, had identified what room in the house felt like where the haunting was focused. And in the upstairs, there was the eldest daughter's room. And both of us, independent of one another, had picked up that that room felt protected. Like of everything else in the house, that was the one that felt quiet and calm. This is important because flash forward to, you know, dead time where we're actually doing the investigation. Um, Ryan's in there and he starts like... Uh, yeah, newsflash, if you've got an investigating team doing paranormal investigation in your house, uh, we kind of rifle through your stuff a little bit uh, <laughs> partly to see like what are you reading what influences might you have are is there evidence of drug use like like what's going on here are there a lot of prescription medicines that could be an explanation for what people are experiencing like that's part of investigating and um he's in there like trying to do the usual thing but he ended up looking under the girls 
bed. And what he found in there uh, was a Ouija board and several witchcraft books. Now, mm. I hadn't told Ryan because I felt earlier that day uh, when I was doing the investigation in her room after the psychic walkthrough, there were a couple of things that had caught my attention and I wanted to look at in a little bit more privacy. And one of them was uh, a jewelry box that was arranged in a very certain way on a little stand in the corner of the room that had some crystals and stones around it in a way that seemed to me like maybe maybe just art and maybe she was practicing something. So I, I kind of poked around in the jewelry box and, and sure enough, like there was, it was like, okay, she is a baby witch. I am not going to out her to her Southern Christian family. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to do it on camera. Uh, but like I noted, this is why this room feels comfortable. She's got it warded. Like she's doing practice in here. She's actually like doing things to change the energy in this space. And it is her way of handling this really haunted house. Like this, this room is a refuge, refuge and part of her practice is helping her keep it like that. So I didn't say anything. Ryan finds a Ouija board. Ryan loses his mind. Lorraine is just like, oh, and she just completely reverses her entire reading based on this Ouija board in the girl's room. Like at, suddenly this room is the most haunted room in the house. This is clearly why the house is haunted. And I mean, she is just up and down about it. And I, I finally sit her down. I'm like, okay. Barring the fact that like the Ouija board, okay, even if she was using it, can we agree that symbols and tools are really kind of in how they are used? You know, you, you can use a hammer to, to nail in a, a nail and like build something productive, or you can use a hammer in a, a terrible murder. Mm -hmm. And the hammer is not at fault in either case. And that's sort of where I fall on Ouija boards. Uh, it's a tool. It's not much different uh, in essence from what we do with a pendulum, with dowsing rods, honestly, with a lot of the tech in paranormal That's what I always think about. I always think about like, if you're going to do, you know, an EMF meter or something, like, I just don't understand why it's so different when it's a Ouija board. Purely PR. I mean, yeah, because it is a like, new publicist, Ouija. No, like, like, like you've got like the little, like, let's, let's take a flashlight and wiggle it in a way. So like, we want the spirit to communicate with us through the flashlight. Well, is the flashlight now a portal? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, not, neither is your ovulus or your K2. And, and all of those are things, the REM pod, you're using those to try to communicate, to give some ability of, of these non-physical entities to, to affect something in the physical world. And the Ouija board just has this huge association with it that is scary for a lot of people, mostly because of pop culture. Right. Uh, and at the end of this story, um, after 40 minutes of going back and forth with Lorraine, was I did manage to convince her that what we should do is go talk to the daughter and find out what any of this stuff means to her. Um, and the end of the story was uh, the Ouija board and the books had been inherited from, I think it was an aunt who had passed away, who was a practitioner. Um, and the daughter was a practitioner herself. And she'd kept those things in honor of her aunt, but she'd never used any of those. She had her own practice going. Hadn't even touched the Ouija board. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, like like it was there because it was like, it was, it was a memento. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, so do you, 
do you subscribe to the belief that like that Lorraine Warren belief that like, let's say someone did use it to conjure up demons or whatever, like, would it, could it still have that energy attached to it? If they really knew what they were doing, maybe, but the average person using a Ouija board at, at best, like the worst thing they're going to get is like some little mischievous thing. That's just like, Hey, free energy. Yeah. Somebody's paying attention to me. You want me to see, seem all big and bad and scary? Sure, I can do that if you continue to pay attention to me. Uh, well, you know. One story that I hear a lot is um, people thinking that they're talking to maybe a loved one or someone that they trust, and then they find out, oh, it's starting to get darker, and maybe this mm-hmm. is a, a demon is usually you know the word that's used. Um, do you know anything about that, or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, my, my biggest problem with Ouija boards is less about whether or not it's a portal to, to open something up and more about how they actually work. Uh, there's this phenomenon called idiomotor uh, response. Uh, so, so basically, uh, there's micro motions in our hands and, and everything. It's probably what works dowsing rods and pendulums as well. Uh, and it's certainly what is at work with table tipping and with Ouija boards. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not in communication with spirits, but it does mean that we are also in communication with our subconscious minds. And what's much more likely to come through on a Ouija board is what we are worried about, what we're fearful about, what we are unconsciously, like we're not consciously pushing it. Um, A deeper part of ourselves or the group who's working on this is influencing where this thing is moving, Uh, which is why if you it's why they're so complicated because of the pop cultural portrayals even if people are trying to have a nice conversation with a dead loved one there's that little thread of fear there's that persistent Lorraine Warren voice of like this is the portal (laughs) it's going to get you an attachment you shouldn't play with a Ouija board and once that fear starts to happen our subconscious fears start to come out on the board Mm-hmm. Uh, so really the unreliability of a Ouija board, not being able to know for a hundred percent, whether it is the people sitting and using it who are coming through, or if it's actually spirits, that's my biggest problem with them. What about uh, sleep paralysis demons? That's what I, you know, that's another one that's really, really gotten, uh, I I feel like sleep paralysis got a good publicist the past few years. That one's interesting. As someone who's got a psych background, um, first of all, there is absolutely a purely physiological thing that happens that is almost indistinguishable from having like a hag attack or something like leaning over you. Uh, we've had a couple of cases where we had to investigate to figure out, like, is this sleep paralysis or uh, is the person who, while they are in the hypnagogic state, while they're in the dream state, are more sensitive, are more likely to have an experience, is there actually something going on? Um, and for me, doing investigations like that, I always ask, like, is there only one person having this experience or are there multiple people in the residence who are having similar experiences? Yeah. Uh, were those people in contact with one another? Did, did like person A have the experience, talk about it to person B, and then person B started to have it? Because that suggests that person B kind of got led into the experience and it's still just physiological. But 
the next question ends up being, are pets responding to it? When someone's having this experience, is someone who is awake, like, do they get a sense of something else in the space? Like, are there other things that are being seen? And kind of like the the gold ticket to this is definitely paranormal is if someone who's sensitive or even somebody who doesn't think that they're sensitive goes into the room where someone is having a sleep paralysis experience, they don't necessarily know that that's what the person is experiencing. And they also perceive something in the room. That's not just physiological. Like you, you can't just project that, that physiological ex- uh, effect. Uh, it's complicated though, because, you know, psychic attack, uh, astral vampirism, uh, those are very, very similar in effect, like those are being weighed down, the sort of like paralyzed, the thing hanging over you, sort of sucking your energy. Uh, and all of that happens purely physiologically with classic night terrors and sleep paralysis. But, you know, and again, this might be just a matter of words and labels or whatever, but is that, is it actually demons? Like, you know, a lot of the time? Hmm. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, and, and actually, even if you go into the folklore of it, um, the terror that comes in the night, I think, is it Dr. David Dolphin? Um, there's a really good sleep paralysis book. Uh, the Mara, the night hag, to be hag ridden, uh, something that's really telling across a number of folk traditions with sleep paralysis, night terror attacks. Um, they're not they're they're unpleasant and it's a dark entity, but it doesn't really seem to fit many of our classic ideas of demons. Um, if there's an entity behind it, it seems to be uh, a different sort of thing. Um, I I will say this: in the cases that I have personally investigated, where I determined for myself to my own satisfaction that it was not merely classic physiological night terrors or sleep paralysis. It was also not what I would identify as a demon. Okay. <laughs> in, in, in one case, actually in a couple of cases, it was a, it was a, it was a person um, several times living, a living person uh, who was, who was reaching out to the person who was asleep uh, in a few cases, because that was when the person was vulnerable. Um, and that's a, that's a technique that can actually be learned. There's a couple of occult traditions that teach it. Uh, where you can you can prey on someone in their sleep. Oh, are you talk, is sort of like a out of body astral projection yeah. type thing? Yeah, which is basically experienced by the sleeper in a way that is almost indistinguishable from night terrors or sleep paralysis. Wait a minute. Okay, which makes it super complicated to try to figure out what's actually going on. Like, there's so many different possibilities. I, uh, there's a story that I reference all the time that happened on this podcast. My friend Gunner told this story about um, going to a place, um, an event where there were some people that were, he wasn't really quite sure, but there was some, they were involved in some type of um, occult practice that seemed dark um, to him. And they they at one point one of the people touched him and Mm -hmm. later that night he experienced that person in his dream and it felt real i mean Mm -hmm. is that do you do you know anything about that oh yeah i know i wrote a whole book on it um it's called psychic it's called psychic dreamwalking uh it's something that i i both 
know how to do and yeah. like like teach in ways where it can so one of the most commonly uh in the annals of like the Society for Psychical Research, all the way back in like you know the 1800s and whatnot, one of the most commonly reported things, like and, and even further before that, is like a death-announcing dream, where it seems like humans have this innate ability spontaneously to reach out to one another in dreams, or in that sort of in-between state where you're not quite asleep and you're not quite awake, but your your daytime brain is kind of shut down, so you're more receptive. You don't think too hard about what you're experiencing, um, and it's an ability that many people have spontaneously, but there are numerous uh, occult and magical traditions that teach how to do this either as a way to communicate, to meet with one another, uh, to do work together, to pass messages along, or in some of the darker traditions, how to reach out to someone in order to prey on their energy, in order to, to take from them, in order to assault them at night. That is so scary. It, it is scary. So so it's also, I guess, why I'm like, well, you know, there are demons, but honestly, some of the nastier stuff and the more, much more widespread is what people do to one another. Yeah. But so you could do this to somebody. I mean, obviously not in like a dark way, I'm assuming, but you could do, you could visit somebody in their dream. Yeah. Um, and, and have done like fairly extensive experiments with it of, uh, you know, telling someone that like within this range of weeks, I'm going to try to do this. And we would keep logs and journals together to see if we met up in the dream space. Uh, there's some fascinating similar experiments that had been carried out uh, by by various people over the years. And it's it's just neat um, that, that this can happen. Uh, again, sometimes spontaneously. I, I saw a huge uptick in, in spontaneous versions of it uh, throughout lockdown because people were so starved for connection uh, and so starved for like human contact that they didn't necessarily think of themselves as psychic or having this ability, but they would find themselves in dreams with one another. Those dreams would feel real. They would have an exchange, something as simple as just sitting down and conversing somewhere. Uh, and sometimes something as, as salacious as more than that. Uh, <laughs> and it would be re- it would be memorable. Like, like one of those things is it stands out as this doesn't only feel like a dream. It's much more... Uh, tangible in a way that like really sticks with you when you wake up. Uh, and that's one of the ways that you can confirm it is usually both both parties have some pretty key memory, even if it's an accidental thing. That's what I was telling my friends all throughout this past year. Like, let's learn how to astral project and we can go like, let's go to Disneyland. Let's like, let's go, yeah. let's go be social. We won't get COVID. <laughs> Well, like, like dream walking, astral projection, at least the way I've always understood it, is, you know, you lay down and you are projecting a part of you, yourself out of yourself. Um, you, you reach the certain, a certain sort of mental state, a vibratory state, if you go with like Robert Monroe's descriptions. And there's definitely a sense of projection as like sort of the, the, the gateway to this experience. Dream walking, um, for me, has always been going in to go out, where you are using the, the very curious state of dreams as sort of your, your launch pad to then meet in this other space, to meet in spaces between where, where, where the flesh can't always go. Uh, 
interestingly, there, there's, there's, there's always historical stuff that I've dug up on it. Uh, dream incubation uh, was something that was widely practiced by the Greeks and the folks that came before them. Uh, it's actually where dormitories come from. If you know the story of Jason uh, and the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece, this, this golden sheepskin was important because of the practice. You would lay down on, this, on, the, uh, on a sacred sheepskin and you would go to sleep in order to communicate with the spirits, with the gods, like in the realm of dreams. You know, they believed that there were some dreams that were just plain old dreams, but that the dream space itself could be used as a step between, a way of stepping into the realm of spirits, the realm of the dead, the realm of the gods, and communing with them. So you would seek out audience, you would seek answers. Uh, it was not uncommon to go to the tombs of great heroes like Achilles and sleep on the tomb in the hopes that the soul of the great warrior would appear to you and speak to you in dreams. You know so many things. <laughs> you've been so generous through your time too. We should probably wrap it up. You've, you've <laughs> given okay. us so much and I really, really appreciate it. Um, are you working on any books or anything right now? Uh, I am slowly chipping away at uh, a past life book uh, on reincarnation and kind of handling past life memories and what we do with those. Uh, I've had, especially through lockdown, just this fantastic, vibrant, supportive community through Patreon. Uh, my Patreon is patreon.com slash haunted. And I have them give me ideas of like, what's the next book you want me to work on? But also I do a lot of classes. Like that's where I've started to do all my teaching. Uh, and I also started doing, uh, during lockdown, talking about walking between spaces and learning how to project. Uh, I started what I call a connection ritual, but it's really uh, a meditation about connection and energy every Saturday, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard, unless otherwise specified which I live stream now on Facebook and YouTube. And it's about 10, 15 minutes of just learning how to get out of yourself and connect with people no matter where you are at. I was also reading on your website, um, the Inspiration House. Uh, my wife and I bought this 150 year old uh, brick house in Oberlin, Ohio. It is by my estimation quite haunted but it's like the coziest haunting that <laughs> it's like, it's basically a whole bunch of old people who lived and died in the house and loved it so much that they never moved out. And usually with hauntings that are this physical, where you are touched, where you hear things, where things move, where the freaking music boxes will just randomly play or actually not even randomly, like play as if they're talking to you. Um, usually it's something negative and this house just just isn't like it's just a whole bunch of old folks that are happy to have some attention. And I use it as well, pre COVID, uh, I used it as kind of a, a training gr ground for psychics, uh, where you could come and we would do weekend retreats, and we'd test our abilities, we'd do workshops and stuff like that, we'd work on dream walking. Um, people have a lot of interesting dream experiences there. At the moment, uh, it's available as an Airbnb for folks who want to come and just do their own solo investigations. Uh, and maybe once COVID is at least handled, uh, we can go back to having classes. 
Oh my god, that is so cool! I looked at the Airbnb and it and it it's beautiful. It looks really great. But so have these have these ghosts there like really gotten used? Like, I mean, with COVID, you know, like are they like where is everyone? Yeah, I will say we have my my wife and I have definitely noticed because the way that we do renting things out with COVID is like we've got like maybe a weekend and then like we let it stand for a while and then we go and clean everything and do all the COVID protocols Uh, with the house standing empty for as many months as it did uh, earlier in lockdown. When we went back and this is going to sound creepy, but I I don't mean it to and I don't think that, that the spirits meant it to, but it felt hungry. Like it felt like it needed some attention and it was sort of languishing. Um, and we definitely found that we were a little tireder and we felt a little worn down when we were there. Uh, like they they not only missed us, but like some essential part of like interacting with them, like letting the house be empty that long had kind of starved them a little bit. Oh. Yeah, I know. I felt really bad because like, like I said, it sounds creepy where it's like, oh, no, I'm pretty sure they're just, you know, you know, our energy right now. And it's just because that's what, I mean, spirits need energy too. And they just, they did not have anybody to interact with for months. It was just this, you know, beautiful brick house, just kind of sitting empty, uh, gathering dust. Well, can you tell everyone, you know, your, your Instagram and one more time, your Patreon, your, how do you say it? Patreon? I always say Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. It's, it's 2021. Pronounce it however the heck you want. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Tell everyone all that stuff. I want them to, uh, if, if they don't already follow you to follow you. Well, my, my Patreon or Patreon, however you wish to pronounce it is haunted. Like, so patreon.com slash haunted. It's I, that, that, that's the one that's the easiest. Uh, my Instagram, my Facebook, my YouTube, and my Twitter are all under Seth Anakim, uh, and that's S-E-T-H-A-N-I-K-E-E-M, which only makes any sense if you've read one of my fiction series, uh, but it's one of those like internet handles that I've had so long that it's just easier to keep it than try to rebrand it. And your website too, I should tell. Oh, michelbelanger.com, or if you don't speak French, michellebelanger.com. <laughs> and that's where all the books, you know, people can find out about all the books and everything. Yeah, that's as well. that's pretty much, that's that's the clearinghouse of everything. There's links to that, links to the connection ritual, links to Inspiration House, to the 3,000-year-old ancient incense that I started making because everybody else during lockdown made sourdough. I decided to make ancient <laughs> incense like you do. <laughs> Thank you so much to Michelle. Go check out everything that Michelle is doing. And if you want to hear more of our conversation, Michelle still gives us even more knowledge. So much. Oh, so nice to give me so much time. You can hear a little bit more on Patreon, where we talk about demonic possession. We talk about joking about ghosts. That is my second tier on patreon.com slash Ross And also the video of me meeting Eddie Munster, a.k.a. Butch Patrick, the actor that played Eddie Munster this weekend. Um, That's on my first tier of Patreon. Please subscribe to this podcast and give us five stars. If you have a ghost story, you could leave it in a five-star review. Or you could just say something nice about me. Or just don't say anything. Just just five stars would be nice. And if you do want to be in a listener episode, send me an email at ghostedbyroz at gmail.com with the subject line, listener episode. And join our Facebook group, 
Ghosted by Roz Dresfalez. Great place to talk to other people that listen to the show. And if you have a ghost story, another great place to leave one. I would love to check those out. And follow me on Instagram at Roz Hernandez. And, you know, all the other places that I'm at. I'm everywhere. I love you all. Both living and dead. But if I didn't ask you to haunt me, don't haunt me. Okay, bye! Star Bands Audio, a podcast network.